Hey, everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. How do you hold a full-time job and run a busy music label? We're going to get into that and lots more on today's episode of Music Therapy. Hey, everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. I'm Jessica Risker. I'm a musician based here in Chicago, Illinois, and I'm also a licensed clinical professional counselor. Music Therapy is a mental health podcast for musicians and music fans. We tackle big issues that are meaningful to musicians, such as creativity, mental health, how to have a music career and make money and just survive as an artist. And we also have deeply intimate conversations with your favorite artists. And today we are talking with Ryan Hall, who is a musician, a social worker, and he also runs a busy music label called Whited Sepulchre Records. We're going to get into how he makes all of that work on today's episode. If you want to listen to past episodes, please visit musictherapypodcast.com. Please subscribe. Leave us a review. We just announced next month's group session at Cafe Mustache with Chicago band Boo Baby. Group session is a live taping of music therapy. It's held at Cafe Mustache, and it's where I talk with the full band. They do a live performance. We have a deep conversation about whatever we want to talk about. There's comedy. There's video. It's really, really fun. Come on out. That's on May 11th. So let me share Ryan Hall's bio before I jump into our conversation. Ryan Hall is a licensed independent social worker living in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he is a practicing therapist and consultant for communities ending youth homelessness. Ryan specializes in EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. We're going to get into exactly what that is in our conversation, but briefly, it's a therapy modality shown to be effective with individuals who have been diagnosed with PTSD. In addition to working as a social worker, Ryan also runs the independent record label Whited Sepulchre Records that has released music by Midwife, Claire Rousset, Mark Trecca, and several Chicago-based artists and bands like Desert Liminal, Ono, Forest Management, Jordan Rays, and more. Ryan also records solo ambient and electronic music under the fitting moniker Openly Weep. We're going to get into lots of great stuff with Ryan today, so let's go ahead and turn to my conversation with Ryan Hall of Whited Sepulchre Records. Thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, let's, let's start out the same way that I do with everybody, which is can you share um, what a typical week looks like for you these days? Yeah, so my nine to five, um, I work solely from home. Um, I work as a technical assistant for communities that are getting federal funding to end youth homelessness. So I do a lot of consulting work, a lot of uh, planning, a lot of uh, a lot of kind of product design for communities that are receiving this federal funding to end youth homelessness. So. I'm working from about eight to four um, here in my office, uh, mostly on a lot of conference calls with uh, with several communities around the country. Um, I, it also gives me a lot of time to listen to records and tapes. Um, so that's one thing I really love about working from home. And then about yeah. from four to seven p.m., four to eight, I'm I'm doing therapy. I'm I'm seeing clients uh, over uh, online. Um, through a, through a platform that I use. And, and so I'm seeing, you know, clients from about, you know, 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. or 4 to 7, uh, about three days a week. Um, and then I, I find time to run the label in between meetings and um, sometimes <laughs> sending out emails and, and very, you know, uh, long, boring meetings that I, I don't need to be particularly engaged in. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's a typical week. That, so how do you spend, I mean, that sounds really busy. How do you spend your weekends? Um, yeah, I, I try to spend my weekends totally like disengaged. Um, so I, I do a lot of cycling. Um, I've, I've been putting in some pretty insane miles on, uh, on my road bike. And yeah, just try to disconnect as much as I, I possibly can. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to share with the listeners, you and I have a lot of overlap. I, I worked for many years in social work with the homeless, um, and then also at night, you know, worked in private practice, and recently, and in the past few years, moved fully into private practice, um, and in, in the music 
it really sounds like we have a lot in common. Yeah, how, how long have you been? I kind of want to get a sense of how long have you been doing each of these things? So, yeah, I, uh, I graduated with my master's degree in social work um, in 2015. And that's also the, the year that I started the label. Um, a, a lot happened in 2015 um, that I can kind of get into. Uh, but yeah, so I, I graduated with my MSW in 2015. Um, I received my uh, my independent license in 2018, um, which is when I started seeing clients out of a, a private practice in Northern Kentucky. So I'm actually dually licensed in, in both Kentucky and o- and Ohio. Cincinnati's just right on the right on the river. Oh, gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So started to see, uh, yeah, started working at a private practice um, out of Kentucky in 2018. And then just this year, uh, jumped ship with two of my uh, friends from that practice. And we started our, our own private practice um, here in Ohio. So yeah, so I've been kind of practicing in the field since 2015. Um, I've had, especially since I started this podcast, I've had multiple musicians reach out to me who are also interested in, you know, either they're studying to be a therapist or interested in being a therapist and um, have asked me how that has looked. And for me, when I was going through all that, I was very conflicted because I kind of just wanted to do music. But back then, just like right now, I've never been quite clear on how to make a living doing music. And so it was, I feel like now I'm at a point where I've resolved the tension for myself. I've made both work, but I'm wondering did you feel that tension or have you, you know, you said you finished the program and started the label in the same year. I'm wondering how, what your relationship with these dual paths has felt like. Yeah. Well, I've never, um, I've never really created like music in, in any, like in any kind of like really uh, serious way. Um, So I, I, you know, I've played in bands kind of on and off um, over the past couple of years and just, in the last year started a, like a solo music project. And so I've always kind of seen my role in sort of the creation of music as kind of like, you know, in the support world, right? You know, booking shows, running a label, writing about music. It's never, um, the creative aspect of it never like was really high up on my priority list. So I never really had to worry about like making a living <laughs> doing it. I, I always kind of saw these as kind of like side you know, gigs or kind of side jobs, things that I felt found really, really fulfilling, but I didn't have to worry about, you know, uh, paying the bills with them. What about, you know, the, uh, the desire to run a label? Yeah. So there's, a, there's a, a long story and a, and, and a short story there. Um, which, which one do you, which one do you want? I, I mean, I want to hear the long story, but I also, okay. maybe, you know, we've got a lot to talk about. So <laughs> yeah, right, right. I'll, 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 I'll give, I'll give the medium story. Um, so when I, uh, I'd been running a, a very, very small net label called Helligator Records shortly after I returned from the Peace Corps in, uh, 2013. Um, and it was really just a very like small, you know, label that was, uh, really set up to be a way to continuously fund this library that we had helped um, set up in um, in a refugee camp that we that we had worked at, and so um, transitioning yeah. from running a, a small net label to kind of like a more physical, you know, cost intensive record label really came about in 2015. Um, I had just graduated, you know, with my MSW, and uh, my dad had passed away really, really suddenly, just like very unexpectedly. Also the same year that I had left a very kind of fundamentalist religious, you know, finally made like formal breaks with like a very fundamentalist, like religious, you know, uh, church that I'd, I'd grown up in. So 2015 was like a very tumultuous year. And I really saw starting this label as a way to kind of like give myself some kind of like anchor that I can really focus and put a lot of time and intention to. Um, so that I would just kind of like keep momentum going um, because I was just in a, otherwise I was kind of afraid I would spiral with all this stuff that was going on. And so starting that label was really very, very cathartic for me. Um, and and um, 
I, I remember very distinctly where I was when I came up with like the name Whited Sepulchre. I was on a run um, in the cemetery behind my house and um, I was listening to the first record that I'd put out or that I was going to put out this beautiful ambient record by Braden Jay. And I was just like really kind of thinking about um, music as this processing tool, right? Of these beautiful like ambient sounds that Braden was able to create um, that was really processing a lot of this like loss and pain that was going on in his life. And really we like with, with ambient music, like the, the input and the output are so obscured, right? So like a C chord can like, you know, put through a whole bunch of effects and processing can turn out into this like beautiful, like wash of like ambient sounds. So it's really kind of thinking about like, you know, what like this music as an emotional processing tool, what were what artists are kind of putting into these sounds? What are what is kind of the emotional input, and sometimes what is like the output that's coming out? Um, can sometimes be like pain going in and like beauty coming out. And and so I was running through this uh, cemetery, and I remembered um, this passage from the Bible um, of Jesus calling the 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 like the hypocrites like whited sepulchers, saying like you know on the outside you're full but uh, on the inside, you're full of rotting flesh and dead man's bones. And I thought that was just like, so, like such evocative imagery, but it was, it was kind of like, it, it very much mirrored how I was feeling about this music that I was listening to. It's like coming into is all this pain um, and, and, you know, contemplating and, and, and kind of these dark places in our life, but coming out of it was like, it's just like this very beautiful, like output. Um, it was coming out. So, things just kind of very much clicked in, in kind of like the space of a couple of months there when I kind of like decided to um, start that, uh, start the label. And what I found is what, what I kind of was looking for as a way to kind of keep myself busy. But what I really found and the, and the reason why I'm like still doing it and the thing that I still love about it is that like I found this really wonderful community of people that, I'm, that I worked with that I put out music by that I would never be able to meet, you know, kind of any other way. And I, I feel like very, very fortunate to like have this really nice community that like I support with the label, but that also like, you know, their my relationships with them uh, are very meaningful to me. And, and, I, and I've remained, you know, very close friends with a lot of people that I've, uh, you know, uh, uh, put out music by. So that's, that's like, amazing. That's, that's the medium story. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was great. Someone commented they'd never heard the origin story before. Um, yeah, that's that's it. <laughs> how do you how do you find the artists that you work with? Um, a lot of uh, a lot of the artists that I've put out music by um, have either been um, like mutual friends or, or people that I've I've known for a, a long time. I saw that um, my really close friend uh, Chaz is on on here, Lake Mary. Um, you know, we've known each other for for ten plus years. You know, back in Lake, and then. Uh, like I, I noticed that like Allison Lorenzen and uh, and Mark Trecker were on here. Those are two people that were introduced to me by a really good friend of mine, Madeline Johnston, uh, who records under the name Midwife. And so, yeah, a lot of mutual acquaintances and then a couple of like cold calls. You, you know, like I, I, I noticed that uh, uh, Desert Liminals on here. I just mm -hmm. put out their record on uh, last last Friday. And, um, you know, uh, Sarah reached out to me and, and was like, you know, here's a here's a record. We were wondering if you'd be interested in putting it out. And um, I very rarely, you know, do that. And I listen to it. I'm like, Oh my God, this is incredible. You know, I, I, I do want to put this out. That was, I really liked hearing that story and, you know, you framing it as sort of a way that kept you anchored and busy in a time where it felt like a whole bunch of change and some pretty hard things were going on. Mm -hmm. There's, there's things, I feel like I'm going to jump around a little bit from topic to topic, but this, it feels like a natural segue in a way you, you know, work with what I assume is a nonprofit with the homeless uh, population and, but I also have started your own and I was looking at your practice. It looks like you guys tried to work on a, um, kind of a accommodating scale for people fee wise. Definitely. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, running a label and, I'm only just now kind of getting to know you, but one of the things that feels like a very common 
point of um, kind of intertention, I think, for therapists or social workers is balancing uh, maybe the, the financial needs of, you know, a therapist with the work that you want to do, which feels like a re really very giving and caring profession, but also there's a the business aspect. So you, you know, started a business during the pandemic, you run a label, um, and I'm wondering, do you ever struggle with squaring those things or do you have a way that you approach, you know, those, uh, well, sometimes it feels like they shouldn't be, I don't think, but competing, uh, interests. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I never, I, I never not struggle <laughs> squaring those, um, you know, working for, um, Actually, I so this this job that I just described actually it's my first time ever not working for a nonprofit. It's actually in the for profit sector and the in the part of this insane mm. uh, conglomerate of like consult of this consulting agency. But mm -hmm. immediately before this, you know, I was working for uh, a nonprofit doing the exact same thing, but just for here in Cincinnati. So um, th that's not to say that like you know I've 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 made it by any means, but it's um, just for a little bit of context. But yeah. I, I found that my approach, and maybe this isn't a, uh, you know, this isn't a necessarily a healthier one, is that I just tend to like put more work in. You, you know what I mean? Uh, like I, I, I just like tend to work more hours to like uh, be able to square that, right? And so, but by doing that, you know, I, I feel like my my nine to five job gives me a pretty firm base in terms of like being able to you know, not worry about paying the bills and stuff like that. And anything, and, and the therapy that I do on the, um, af, you know, kind of after normal work hours is something that like, I mean, it, it, that we do, we do work on a sliding scale. We also do take insurance and, 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 and so, you know, those tend to kind of balance each other out, but I found it's really rewarding that I, I, you know, I can do like three or four hours of therapy and feel like pretty, so sometimes, you know, pretty drained, but sometimes like I can feel like pretty like energized when I, when I can see, um, you know, mm -hmm. progress being made. So yeah, I guess my, my approach may, might not work for everyone, but, and I don't know how long it's going to work for me, but I just tend to kind of like work, you know, a little bit longer than, well, I work more than 40 hours a week. I guess we can say that. Yeah, that definitely seems, well, how do you, uh, how do you approach the label? From, you know, do you see this as a, how much do you see this as sort of a money-making endeavor? <laughs> I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. But, I don't know. What, how do you, how do you look at it? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if you can necessarily, in, in 2021, I don't know if you can necessarily start a label and see it as like a money-making, um, uh, right. money-making venture. <laughs> it's just, you know. The, the 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 means of um distributing music um the way to recoup what you're putting out there is if if i feel like if you're kind of breaking even you know then you're 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 doing really really well um i think that the people who are um and, and I, I like i have to commend you know the labels that are doing it you know but like that like that would ne necessitate being like that being your only thing and branching out into like lots of other avenues um, that like, like licensing and synchronization and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So I, I, I'm just not quite sure like how you would approach um, starting a label and, and expecting it to be like, you know, you're, you're, you're recouping that, you know, you're, or, or, or that you're making money or you're able to kind of like, yeah, make a living doing that. I, I don't think that was ever the case, like with independent labels, like, you know, in the 90s or the 2000s. It certainly isn't, you know, now. So everybody's Is always kind of had fun. Because I know that's. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I guess. This is this isn't to make I don't want this to come off like this is just a business and money conversation. It's more it's fresh oh, in my yeah. mind because you know Spotify has has all the wrapped stuff going on and everyone on Twitter is like Spotify streaming and no money and all that stuff. So I'm definitely thinking about it, especially today. Um, and just wondering, you know, because is that something that you would like to aim for? Or is this more this is a side thing and I do it 
no, support I, artists and I want to do it, but I don't necessarily need to think of it or would you like to oh, create of this is like more of a yeah i i mean i of of course i you would every label would like to have that one you, you know like be able to um sustain yourself sustain artists uh, you know often and stuff like that and so that has gotten me thinking a little bit more about um okay well you know know that i only have so much time you know I, and i and i know that i can only you know dedicate x amount of hours a day in doing this what are some other um what are some other avenues that could create like those, those opportunities? And I think, you know, really looking into like music licensing and synchronization for like mm -hmm. film and TV and, and movie, like, and just visual art and stuff, I think could be a, like a really uh, important way for artists to make money these days. Um, just with so much visual content being created. Um, I think that, uh, being able to kind of tap into those markets could be like a really important, you know, way for musicians to kind of think about and labels to kind of think about how they can position themselves to uh, potentially, you know, make money where, you know, sustain themselves where we're, we're, we're seeing um, sometimes not always like the, the same return in physical media and definitely not in streaming. Do you think you would choose your artists any, would you, if, if you were doing this for money, how much do you think you'd be shaping, it would be shaping your choices on what you're releasing? And <laughs> I don't, I, I honestly have no idea because I, I think one of the, the things I really love about White and Sepulchre as um, just as a kind of an ethos is that um, every, uh, every release is different and it's intentionally so, right? So I came out, you know, the three records that came out, you know, last uh, last week were all very different from each other, right? You know, one was Desert in the Middle, this kind of like very, you know, like beach housey, but also very kind of, you know, kraut, you know, like stereo lab, you know, uh, you know, indie rock record. And then Alison Lorenzen, which is like this, like, these like very soft, but kind of these swelling songs that immediately was preceded by a, like a, a record like Mark Trekka's, which is this like, you know, experimental minimalist piano record that was preceded by, um, you know, a, a project by Raven Chacon and John Dietrich, which was like this, you know, very experimental and challenging, you know, uh, it, like avant-garde record. And my next record is going to be a, a, a uh, the next record that's coming out in February is a free jazz record. <laughs> you know what I mean?
yeah, this was supposed to be utopian. It sucks now. Um, yeah. I think that if I would have, you know, thought about that, like, I think that, you know, um, like maybe like spit, like spit, picking a specific genre, you know, that's like really popular, you know, and, and, and just going, you know, full bore into, you know, these like subgenres that like exist, but yeah. So I'm not really sure how, how I would, you know, approach that. Um, because I, I, I love, uh, just being able to just be totally like omnivorous and, and, uh, release what, you know, I was really kind of peaking my ears without kind of much, you know, without this consideration of like, well, you know, is this going to, you know, is this going to appeal to my demographic or whatever? (laughs) Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, no, that's interesting to hear how you think about it. And I, I, you know, am noticing on your, your website for your label, just the very variety. I mean, you even have a way to sort, um, based on the type of music that, you know, you're really, you're really dabbling in a lot of different sounds and, um, you know, I, I think I personally kind of gave up, I would love to make money as a musician, but I think I've kind of part of being a therapist, like this is how I, that's how I make my money and I like doing it, Yeah. but then I make my yep. music and I don't worry about, I don't worry about, is it, I don't know, marketable or whatever. Um, but you know, so that also makes me think about going back to being a therapist a little bit. I want to ask you more about that. One of the things that I think a lot of therapists hear is if you have your own practice is that you don't want to specialize. You don't want to specialize in everything. You want to sort of find a niche. You want to find yeah. like, here's what I do. And almost kind of what we're talking about, kind of the opposite of what you're talking about with your approach with your label right now. Um, but I'm really interested to ask you about a type of therapy you do that's called EMDR. And I was wondering if you could share with people what that is exactly. And Yeah, completely. No, it's funny. I, I have taken the exact opposite approach with my, um, you know, with, with my therapy is I've, I've found a neat, like I found a niche and, and um, yeah. And I, I feel like um, I, yeah, I, I feel like I do well in the, in this niche. So uh, yeah, I, um, this year I was, um, I was trained and certified in EMDR, which uh, stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing, um, which is a, it's a type of therapy that I think is becoming very popular um, among therapists. I think um, mainly because people who have um, used it or who have gone through it and also uh, therapists who have practiced, you know, been trained and practiced with it have found it to be extremely effective um, with individuals who've experienced a lot of trauma. Um, it's one of the, it's like one of the few actually, uh, like evidence-based therapy modalities for PTSD. Um, and so when we're looking at like E like, okay, what is EMDR, right? We can kind of break it up into, you have the eye movement part and then you have the desensitization. So essentially what we do in EMDR is it's a, it's an approach to, um, talking about therapy. I, I, I guess I can talk a little bit like when I was kind of just doing cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and you probably have this uh, experience as well, is I have a client, you know, who comes to see me for anxiety and depression, and then two, three sessions in discloses some major trauma, you know, that, that has happened mm-hmm. to them. And I just felt like, you know, just in, in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, which was, you know, I was trained in, which I feel like a lot of therapists are, are, are trained in, we would um, begin talking about um, the trauma and just the um, the disclosing of it and the ha- and and the talking about it and the almost having to relive it there in session. I didn't really feel like we were making much progress. Like I, I would feel like we would talk about it and we would you know try to explore the evidence formed against these beliefs that are formed when we experience traumatic events, but nothing was really shifting in their nervous system. They would continue just to um, come to therapy. And then sometimes we like, you know, like we would do the best we can, but there really not much would be um, happening there. So I started doing a lot of research on EMDR after a couple of um, therapists who were at my practice um, had been uh, trained in it and, and, and had some really, you know, positive things to say about it. And so, um, yeah. So basically, uh, yeah, this year I became uh, certified in it. And so what we like, 
EMDR looks a lot than like mint, right? Which is um, basically uh, we call it like bilateral stimulation, right? Basically, like anything that kind of crosses the visual plane, right? Um, and so I use a, a software platform that has a ball going back and forth, or uh, auditory tones that kind of go back and forth between ears, or you can even do you know tapping like on your on your collarbones. Basically, anything that kind of crosses this you know cr- crosses the plane. And so the what that does is as you are recalling this. Um, as as you are calling this recalling this traumatic event and the belief that comes with it, the eye movement actually desensitizes your um, the the kind of like flooding of of, uh, of negative emotions that usually attend or usually come with thinking of or being triggered by something really traumatic, right? So by doing this eye movement, essentially what we're kind of doing is bringing down the volume or kind of bringing down like the intensity of those negative emotions uh, that, that come with recalling traumatic experiences. And then once, once we kind of have desensitized or kind of brought down those negative emotions, then the brain does what the brain does, right? Which is begins to process that trauma, right? Begins to, begins to recall or really work on installing these more adaptive or positive beliefs that we all have, right? But often we can't kind of we can't reach or we can't get to because we're anytime we we recall or we think of these traumatic uh, events, we just become flooded with negative emotions. And so it, it really just kind of like lowers the temperature on our ability to recall these traumatic experiences. So we can just sort of like let the brain do what the brain naturally does. Right. Which is it's geared mm-hmm. towards healing. Right. It's it's geared towards regulation. And then by. Um, in, by by kind of re, by processing that event and by kind of focusing on the adaptive or the positive belief that you, you would like to have about a traumatic experience that happened, um, then the next time that you are kind of in the real world, right, and something triggers uh, something triggers you that normally would kind of that would recall that would kind of have you recall this this negative belief that would come with all these really negative emotions you actually seem to you you recall the adaptive or the positive belief that we that we you know worked on in in emdr and so the intensity and the duration of those negative emotions is is lessened um so yeah i I, hopefully that i I, sometimes it's hard to succinctly talk about what we do in emdr because it's like it's it's doesn't really look like you know normal (laughs) you know talk therapy. But what I love about it is that often, you know, like in a couple of sessions, um, I'll have clients basically like say things about the situation. Like, oh my God, I can't believe I I thought that was my, like, I, that was my fault for all those years or Uh like, you know, like, you know, like this is so absurd. Like, I can't believe like, you know, like a mother would talk to their child like this. Like, I don't deserve to be talked to like that. Like I deserve like to be comforted. I deserve to be loved. Right. They are like, they are saying these things that like would have taken, you know, like, you know, tons and tons of sessions of me, you know, telling them, right. And maybe they believe it, maybe they don't, but because they've, they've really lowered the temperature on those negative, those negative emotions, they are able to really kind of work that out on their own. And it becomes so much more powerful and kind of more poignant because it is, it is, it is their brain kind of making those connections and, and really processing that in a very natural and normal way. Just really internalizing that instead of just, I hear that intellectually, but I can't seem to latch onto that emotionally. Oh, and, and, and that's what people say all the time. It's like, look, I know this wasn't my fault, right? I know there's nothing I could do, yeah. right? I know this thing that happened to me wasn't my fault. I can understand that intellectually, but it doesn't feel that way. And, and, that, and that's with the, right. with the yeah, bilateral stimulation. It, it really helps us bring down that negative emotion so we can really kind of like deal with the, the memory, the belief without just being flooded with those ne- negative emotions. So, you know, how... In your experience, how many sessions of, of doing EMDR ha- have you done before you've seen real changes from people? 
It, it totally depends on the client, right? Um, I, you, like, like all things, I, I think that the most important thing is like the therapeutic alliance between, you know, the client mm-hmm. and, the, and the therapist. Um, and so with some people like who have like maybe uh, done, like who, who maybe know about EMDR or may, who have maybe even tried some somatic therapies and, and, and things like that, seemed a little bit more kind of primed to like, you know, um, to kind of latch on to like the, the structure of it and um, uh-huh. seems to go really well. Some people, you know, um, yeah, uh, it, it totally depends on, on, on the client, but, you know, uh, I've had a couple of, you know, clients where within the, you know, second or, or, you know, second or third session, just really just have these massive, you know, shifts and, in, in, in things that have always kind of like, just they, they've never really um, been able to kind of uh, like make some kind of like movement on in terms of like, uh, yeah, in, in terms of just not becoming just overwhelmed anytime they think about it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's really, that's amazing. And I hope that, you know, anybody who listens to this and if you've, if you've gone through some trauma, that's something you could look into is, somebody who specializes in that it's very much a specialty um but searching for that um i'm again bouncing around a little bit but um one of the things that we had uh mentioned beforehand to discuss was um and this is kind of bouncing back from from strictly doing therapy to also the your creative side but um, you had mentioned balancing mental health work and creative endeavors. What what are you thinking of there when you when you mention that topic? Yeah, um, I, I feel like a lot of um, a, a lot of musicians and a lot of artists kind of are drawn towards those creative um, because they are like incredibly sensitive people, right? who feel mm-hmm. a lot of things and feel like every emotion, <laughs> you know, from, from up yeah. to down. Right. And, and use kind of like um, music as a way to kind of process that. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think where I, where I'm, I'm going there, kind of what I, you know, I, what I'm interested in, like why I was drawn to your podcast is that, you know, that seems to be a topic that kind of comes up a lot is like, you know, how do I, as a, you know, person who is, you know, who, who already is like very, you know, sensitive, um, kind of hard on my sleeve person who is creating these, you know, really um, important, like emotional works also exist in this like pretty ruthless capitalist, you know, uh, society that we live in that really doesn't value that beyond the, you know, commodification that, you know, you could, you could extract from it. And so, yeah, I, I um, yeah. No, go ahead. What were we going to say? <laughs> oh, no, 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 I think I've finished my point. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, can we talk about your, um, you know, you do so many things, but you also have a musical project yourself. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, um, like I said, I, I played, you know, I played bass and um, like just a couple of uh, short lived kind of projects here in Cincinnati, like I can't, you know, obviously um, uh, spend a whole time in a band, right? <laughs> Just with my, my work schedule and stuff like that. So I found that, um, you know, creating um, this solo electronic project um, that I started this year called Openly Weep was a really, really important way for me to carve out time in a day or in a week, you know, to really focus solely on producing and creating something. Um, and so Openly Weep came from um, taking, uh, taking field recordings from places that were really, really significant to me. So um, I mentioned that I was in the Peace Corps for two years in Swaziland, Africa. Um, mm-hmm. And my wife and I were actually able to go back there um, back in 2019. And, um, and I really wanted just to kind of like, uh, capture so many of the sounds that like, I, I think of, um, you know, every day, like when I, like what the, you know, what the night sounded like with, um, you know, with these kind of like 
far off distant cows, you know, like mooing of cows and like the, the bells and the cows swinging and, you know, the insects and also what like a really um, busy bus ranks like in, in Johannesburg or, you know, in, in, uh-huh. in Swaziland. Um, and then also like thinking a little bit about my work, um, I, my, my, my first job right out of grad school was doing homeless outreach. Um, doing homeless outreach for youth experiencing homelessness. And um, so much of my time, so much of my days were going underneath these overpasses um, and, um, you know, into homeless camps that have their own very distinct kind of like sonic landscape. And one thing that a client told me that I'll never forget is um, when we were able to... um, uh, move her um, into housing um, after being like on the streets under this overpass for like two years, she said like, I have a really, really hard time sleeping because it's just so quiet. Right. Because like the, the, the mm-hmm. highway would just create this kind of like hypnotic, just like droom, droom, kind of this, like almost like kind of this like eighth note, just kind of like steady kind of pulsing, you know, beat. Um, and so she's like, I can't sleep. It's just, things are just so, just so, silent. And so I, you know, I, I went back, you know, after I kind of um, uh, moved away from doing that direct practice and kind of more into the role that I'm doing now. Um, it, it took me a while to really realize just how much that affected me, like on a daily basis, like how much of that I was like really bringing home with me, how, uh, how much I wasn't really processing that. Um, but back to those places and taking some of the it was a very kind of cathartic experience for me to 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 do that, um, to return to it kind of in a different headspace and, you know, in, in a different kind of like, even though it was cu- only a couple years removed, I feel like in a very different place in my life. And so I use those field recordings as kind of like the the, the noise floor or kind of the uh, kind of distinct um, like sonic elements in those songs. And the songs are very uh, like beat oriented and, and some of them I feel like very uh, mm-hmm. uh, joyous, right. And, and, and dance, dancey. Right. Um, and, and I, I, I kind of approach it with this idea of like, okay, well, you know, how do we kind of like turn this into catharsis? How do we turn these, you know, moments of like, you kind of in some ways um, it both represented like, you know, very poignant moments of, of places where I was and, and things that brought me so much joy, but also places that like represented just kind of like a lot of suffering, right? Like the fact that people, the you know, the fact that people sleep under bridges, right, is just like a, a an incredibly just, you know, uh, absurd and violent, just uh, absurd and just like, uh, like violent, like, um, like outgrowth of, of, of our society. And so, you know, how can I, you know, like reflect on, on that and then turn these kind of into cathartic moments where I felt like the most, like, alive, and, and everybody, I think, who has experienced this has felt the most alive, which is, you know, dancing with your friends and, and just like that, that, the, the, uh-huh. those moments of kind of like togetherness and, and catharsis.
Yeah. So it was a really important way for me to, I think, kind of um, figure out, use that project to kind of like make sense of the, like the last five years in my life, like basically like, or the last, uh, yeah, about seven or eight years of my life since I moved to Cincinnati. Yeah, that really, I mean, that really ties back to what you're talking about at the beginning, which is just using music to emotionally process things and what goes in versus what comes out. And yeah. it sounds like that's something that you've personally used as well. Absolutely. And it's something I love to explore with clients as well. Doing, um, you know, for a while, I worked at a, a, a group home for um for boys who had um, really significant like behavioral and mental health challenges who were in the foster care system and um, using music, especially with like, you know, youth, right. You know, teenagers and stuff like that is so, Mm -hmm. so powerful. Um, I would, I would love um, not only to share music with them. Right. Um, I would share stuff like, uh, you know, like I grew up listening to like hardcore. I would, I would show them a Bane song and be like, like in this song, it's so aggressive and heavy, but it's also like so joyous and just like, you know, like, like, you know, you could just imagine like singing this, like with your friends. Right. And then I'd play them something like Satie or, or, or Arvo part or something where it's just like, this is so sad, but it's so beautiful. Right. You can have these conflicting emotions uh-huh. or you can have multiple emotions at once. Right. Um, and then I, I'd have them show me stuff, you know, which was awesome. Because I got to, you know, so much great. I got exposed to so much, like, amazing Cincinnati hip-hop that, like, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be able to hear any other way, um, you know, that's like, oh, check mm-hmm. this out. This is, you know, like, some, like, YouTube. You know, just just uploaded to YouTube, like, you know, four hours ago. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I thought that was, that was such yeah, a good right. to connect to people. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that was really bonding, too, just to share that, that back and forth. And, um uh, you you uh, mentioned one more bullet point that I'm very interested in um, hearing more about, which is the link between experimental music and endurance sports. Yeah, this is something. What is that, that link? I'm, yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> I I'm I'm trying to figure out <laughs> with with my with myself and with other um, with other people that I know. Um, I'm I'm just really really curious, and and maybe this is something you know, for future studies or, or something that, you know, I could explore later on in my, in my life, because I've like, I've just found like my, my relationship with experimental music and, and endurance sports is really profound. Like I, you know, I tend to go on really long rides on the weekends and, um, you know, I'll listen to, um, you know, something like Lamont Young or, or, or uh, Phil Nyblock, you know, these like, uh, me, you know, for some reason, just not having any sort of meter or timing <laughs> is just really helps me just like stay focused in the moment. And, and I've noticed that like, you know, some of my peers um, are also sort of have this itch, right? So like, I'm thinking of Jordan Reyes, you know, just ran a marathon. I'm so, you know, so proud of him, <laughs> you know, um, somebody like Mike Shiflett, you know, who is like an ultra marathoner, right? Who's a, you know, really uh, accomplished, you know, experimental musician who, you know, runs like, you know, these insane, like 80, 100 mile runs and stuff like that. And um, I've just, I've, I've just sort of no- noticed sort of this gravitational shift of, of some, you know, pe- some of my peers who, you know, are, are kind of immersed in experimental music also really be really gravitating towards these endurance sports. So I'm just interested in it <laughs> as a, um, as, oh, as a okay. potential link. I don't, I don't, I don't have any definite answers there. It's just something that really interests me. This is an observation. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, here's a, here's a question that I've gotten, um, actually a few people reaching out to me lately, which is, um, Again, these are people who do music and are entering the field of doing therapy, and they've asked me about using their real name for both music and as a therapist. What are your thoughts on that? (laughs) Good, good. Thankfully, there's uh, like a million Ryan Halls out there, and um, one is actually like a a, a world class marathon runner. So, like, my name is pretty ungoogleable. yeah, but yeah. that's a yeah. I don't know. That's a um, that's a really good question. I mean, 
it depends on how you want to approach that conversation when people ask about your personal life. You know, how much do you feel um, uh, comfortable disclosing? And sometimes, I guess, having your real name out there as a as a musician or as you know a, a public you know person or whatever kind of for can sometimes force that discussion. So. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's a that's a that's a tough one. Or maybe not even a discussion. Maybe they. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I from the beginning. You you do music. You do this podcast. Has that ever come up with you? I don't use my I don't use my uh, legal last name for my counseling. Is it okay? Got it. So I, you know, to me, it has felt. I was debating this with a friend the other day, but to me, it feels. It would feel strange. Uh, if someone was curious about me as a therapist and they saw a video of me playing at Kohl's or something, I don't know. I just, uh, I think I, I'm more of the, uh, I disclose when I feel like it's appropriate about myself yeah. personally, but I feel like I'm more, uh, more of a blank slate ish approach to therapy, but I've had, you know, it's, it's definitely interesting to think about and the age of social media you know, yeah. you have to think, I think you should think about it. I just wondered how you, you know, seems like you used your same name for all of your stuff, but like you said, you also have a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. share your name, I, I'm I, sure, I, with a lot of people. Right, so. right. I, I can hide under a little bit of, like, anonymity. Um, yeah, it's, that's a really good, it's, ne- it's honestly never come up, unfortunately. <laughs> no, nobody's been, yeah, sought me out for therapy and also knew about my label. <laughs> so that's, you know, it's a you know, good thing. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess, um, hmm. yeah, I, I guess that would be up to the individual about how much they, 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 they feel like that might be a hindrance in it, in, in creating that therapeutic alliance or, uh, forcing kind of some of that self-disclosure. How would, how would you feel? Just, I mean, I know this could depend on the person, but yeah. would you want your clients to know about, you know, your label and this other part of your life? Um, I mean, like, as a blanket statement, like, not really, (laughs) you know what I mean? Just because I, (laughs) like, it would would be of any sort of like, um, I I just don't know how it would necessarily help, (laughs) you know, in the, um, in, 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 in what we're doing. But if it happens, like, I wouldn't have a problem saying like, yeah, you know, outside of here, I, you know. Run yeah. A, yeah, this is a part of my life, you know, and, but I would make that same, dis, that same decision about any type of disclosure that I would, uh, you know, make about right. any aspect of my life, whether that be, yeah, like marriage status or, you know, like where I, yeah, just any, any kind of like, you know, personal disclosure. Yeah, I think for, you know, um, I remember when I was pregnant, that was, that's a very obvious <laughs> personal thing going on in your life that they kind of figure out and uh, can be complicated, especially if you have clients who would like to have a baby, but they have struggles or something like that. Um, But yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting debate and um, definitely something it's good to at least think about, I think, especially if you have a more, (laughs) more unique name, maybe. Um, Tell us before we have to wrap up today, can you tell us about, you mentioned some of them before, but I want to give some more attention to some of the releases that you, you know, have been putting out recently or have coming up. Yeah, um, sure. So I can, um, I'll, I'll focus on some of the most recent ones. Um, so I, I mentioned, um, sorry, it wasn't last week, it's the week before on the 19th. I released three records um, by... Uh, Liminal, um, who is uh, on <laughs> on here, um, who's from Chicago. Sarah's been on your podcast, and you're doing a show with them. Um, they're playing a release show on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, like I said, that was a that was a, a unsolicited um, email that I, I heard, and I just immediately just, you know, it was incredibly arresting to me. Um, and uh, then another record that I put on the same day is by Allison Lorenzen, who's also in this. Um, Allison's a Denver-based uh, artist who creates like these just beautiful kind of like quiet but very kind of cathartic and swelling um, songs who um, is 
accompanied on several of them by uh, midwife uh, Madeline Johnson, who's a I put out a record by his really close friend. And then the third in that series is um, by this artist, the Chicago artist named Zavara, uh, who is this incredible uh, multifaceted electronic artist whose work spans from like, you know, really, really kind of like deep house and techno to ambient music to video games, um, soundtracks. She's really, really incredible. And, is uh, rightfully so getting a lot of uh, getting a lot of attention, which is awesome. Um, and then immediately, kind of preceding that, um, I, I put out a really um, a really great uh, cassette by this artist Mark Treka, who is also on here, um, which was a, a companion to a record that I put out earlier in the year called Acknowledgement. This is called Implication. Um, that is this really kind of beautiful, like minimalist um, uh, these. Uh, one is just like a sidelong composition uh, of pr- like a of, uh, prepared piano and, and extended technique. Um, and then the record that I just announced today that the pre-order is available for, is coming out in February by this mm-hmm. uh, incredible bassoonist um, out of New York City uh, named Joy, G- uh, Joy Guidry. Um, Joy is uh, this brilliant uh, Berlin Prize nominated um, artist who put together this really incredible record called Radical Acceptance that goes from spoken word to just deep, deep ambient, like like just deep chest rattling drone to these like really incredible, like free spirited, um, uh, like free jazz, uh, uh, ensemble pieces, um, you know, kind of back into this like really beautiful ambient drone world. So it's a really, uh, it's a really exciting record um, that I'm, I'm, I'm really just, you know, thrilled to uh, have a hand in putting out. Well, that, uh, that sounds great. Can you, can you tell the listeners, you know, where they can go to learn more about uh, the label and your, the artists? Yeah, definitely. So you can go to Whited Sepulcher uh, Records on Bandcamp um, or just whitedsepulcherrecords.com. And um, yeah, uh, have vinyl, tapes, CDs. It's on Spotify as well. Thank you so much, Ryan. It was really, it was really nice to talk to you and kind of share uh, our experiences and, and listen to your thoughts on, on all these things. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, Really appreciate you having me on your show and get, getting to talk about this stuff. Okay, I want to thank Ryan Hall. It was fun to talk to a fellow uh, therapist and musician. I hope you guys are all doing well and hanging in there. Visit musictherapypodcast.com for past episodes and upcoming events. Our next group session, which is a live taping of music therapy that I where I talk with a full band at Cafe Mustache, is on May 11th with Chicago band Boo Baby. Music Therapy is hosted by Jessica Risker, produced by Sullivan Davis of Local Universe, and engineered by Joshua Wentz in Chicago. Hope you guys are doing well. Have a great week. Peace and love until I see you again.